0: Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. Hey, it's Jordan. Listen, a lot of people look at continuing education as a way to find a new career path. And during the time that I've been checking out the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, that's what I've been doing. And lifelong learning empowers us to improve our life circumstances, to meet changing employment demands, or to challenge our minds and improve our knowledge. But... As I can tell you from hosting this show for five years, I've just found great joy in diving deep into something you're simply curious about. And the School of Continuing Studies has more than 800 courses and 100 certificates to choose from to pique your curiosity. Here's one. As someone who used to be a reporter in a high-stress, anxious job, one of the things that I used to unwind at the end of the day, or, listen, sometimes during it, was mindfulness. Mindfulness. And I was surprised and a little delighted to find that the School of Continuing Studies has an entire program dedicated to the practice. I'm fascinated by mindfulness because I'm fascinated by things that have their origins in ancient Eastern spirituality that spread to the West as practical self-help exercises and then end up commodified and sold as best business practices. Mindfulness has taken that entire journey and then some, and you can understand how it happened through these classes. If you're curious about something too, or you're looking for a new path, or you just find yourself wondering about all the things you always wanted to know more about, the School of Continuing Studies has something for you. You can browse those hundreds of courses and register at learn.utoronto.ca. That's learn.utoronto.ca. National Bank's online brokerage is available at $0 commission. That covers all online stock and ETF transactions. No minimum needed. Time to get started. Learn more at nbdb.ca. National Bank. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production.
2: They are asking me for $12,000, so they want me to pay back the entire amount of CERB that I received.
0: That's Cara, a 69-year-old living in British Columbia. This summer, she received a letter from the Canada Revenue Agency informing her that she was ineligible for the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit, a.k.a. CERB, that she received in 2020. They say she has to pay it all back.
2: So this $12,000 repayment is completely out of my budget. There's no way that I can pay this back in any shape or form.
0: Before the pandemic, Cara was making about $29,000 a year, working part-time at a college and occasionally teaching classes at her local community centre. When the world shut down... In March of 2020, so did the community centre. Cara lost nearly half of her income. She was, however, able to keep working remotely at her part-time job with the college, bringing in $1,300 a month. That amount covered her rent and a portion of her bills. It left nothing for utilities or for groceries. So when the government announced the CERB program, She decided to apply.
2: I think it was more survival than anything. It was like I didn't really have a choice. I wouldn't be paying any of my utilities or buying food if I had to just rely on my part-time income. What choice did I have? There was just
0: one problem. In order to qualify for CERB, you could not be making more than $1,000, either in employment or self-employment income.
2: So when I saw that qualification, I thought, well, that's pretty weird because what that means is... If you make $999, you get $2,000 a month. But if you make 1001 you get nothing.
0: Despite that uncertainty, Cara started receiving the benefit, and she was able to pay her bills and buy groceries.
2: I really only needed 1000 a month to just keep my basic living. Whatever I didn't use, I just banked it, because I also knew that I mean, it was obvious from the science that the pandemic wasn't going to go away in September. And I didn't know whether the government was going to put together any other benefit packages or support packages. And so I just banked it. And you know, the irony is that it's probably the first time in my life where I had emergency savings.
0: (laughs) Cara used that savings to help cover expenses until the end of 2020. Today, right now, almost four years
2: later, she is still not making what she was before
0: the pandemic.
2: I'm not doing in-person classes. I'm not teaching at the community center. So I'm having to find ways to generate income digitally. And I'm basically just staying above water. And like many of us,
0: Cara's expenses have only gone up.
2: I'm at a point in my life where... Probably not going to be retiring, as we think of retirement. But to have this burden, this financial burden hanging over me for the rest of my life, or to declare bankruptcy, which has its own effects, those are my choices.
0: She applied for a reconsideration with the CRA, but she was denied.
2: I have to wonder how good it is for our economy if a bunch of people go bankrupt. And how much does that impact them when a bankruptcy can affect whether you can rent, whether you can buy a car, you know, and any number of other things? Not to mention the, the self-esteem issues. Like It doesn't matter how many people say, oh, well, you know, bankruptcy is not that bad and everything. But it, there's, a, there's a level of shame there telling people that you have had to go bankrupt. There's still a stigma on that. So it's way more than just the financial stuff. It's the stress factor. It's the shame factor. And it's so wrong.
0: Cara is not alone. There are hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Canadians who are now required to pay back the pandemic benefits they received. So why now? What do we know about where this money went, who benefited, and now, who's paying the
2: price.
0: I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, and you are listening to In This Economy, the show where we help you understand the systems that are creating your money problems, everything from grocery bills to mortgage renewals and everything that's more expensive now than it used to be. In every episode, I will talk to a listener who is facing a financial challenge like Cara, and then I'll talk to an expert or two who can explain the factors causing that problem And offer, if not perfect solutions, then pivots or options. Things that you can try, things that might work, even in this economy. Let's rewind a few years here. You might remember this press conference. It happened in March of 2020. If you've lost
1: your job because of COVID-19, whether you're full-time, contract, or self-employed, this new benefit will be there for you. If you're sick or quarantined, looking after someone sick or at home taking care of your kids, it's there for you.
0: And even if you're still employed but not receiving income because of this crisis, the CERB is there for you. Yep, that is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau addressing the nation from the steps of 24 Sussex Drive. At that point, everything was shut down. Everyone was scared. And we were all being asked to stay home to prevent further spread of the deadly COVID-19 virus.
3: Their message was, we have your backs. We're not going to leave any Canadian behind. And they rolled out initially the SERB payments, Canada Emergency Relief Benefit, in record time.
0: Elizabeth Mulholland is the Chief Executive Officer of Prosper Canada, a national charity dedicated to expanding economic opportunity for Canadians living in poverty. I asked her to come back with us to those first few months of the pandemic.
3: Everybody was making it up as they went. Um, So I think that's an important point to remember. And the government was very responsive to feedback from people who said, well, you're leaving out these groups or, you know, if you're delivering it this way, people aren't going to get it. We need to do Uh, more to make sure that people are getting the benefit, you know, they really tried to respond in real time to all the feedback they were getting. But one of the byproducts of, of that responsiveness was the information was changing that citizens were receiving, that at times the information they were receiving was contradictory. It was coming from different sources in the government. It wasn't really aligned. So there was a certain level of confusion that necessarily accompanied that.
0: What do you mean by that? Can you give me an example of like the contradictory information?
3: Yeah, I think the one example that uh, stands out particularly is around self-employment income. And there was confusion about whether you needed to have $5,000 of net self-employment income or gross self-employment income in the preceding year to be eligible for SERB. And in fact, the government had different information out in different places on that. And it recognized that in retrospect. And It went back and said, okay, we'll accept anybody who had $5,000 in gross income, even though our intention was that it be net income. And they reimbursed people who had had to pay back because of that. So that was a good example of where they recognized that there had been conflicting information and that they did the fair thing, you know, which was to say, we're sorry that we gave you contradictory information. We understand that you applied in good faith. And so we're not going to hold you responsible.
0: At the time that they were announcing it and there was confusion about uh, who qualified, who didn't qualify, you know, again, to your point, doing this at lightning speed, what did the government say about people who applied but weren't sure if they would qualify and, you know, didn't have a lot of money and might be right around the threshold? Like, I know they were asked questions like that.
3: Yeah, I don't remember them saying much, (laughs) honestly. It was kind of like, here's the form, fill it out, and if you're eligible, you know, if you say you're eligible, we'll give you the money. And and I think people are desperate. So they applied. And really the government's intention was to make sure that people were not destitute. And I think everybody agreed with that. For people with low incomes who applied, many of them were receiving provincial benefits, so welfare or disability support, or they may have been on federal benefits like the guaranteed income supplement for low-income seniors. And the ones who are on the provincial benefits, one of the policies governing those benefits is that recipients are expected to access every other uh, source of income that's available to them. Hmm. And that policy got applied and their caseworkers were telling them across the country, you need to apply to CERB. And some of them would say, you need to apply to CERB if you think you're eligible. Others were saying, you need to apply to SERB." regardless of whether you think you're eligible or not. And in some cases, they even went so far as to say, you need to apply to SERP or we're cutting you off your provincial benefits. And these are the benefits that people use to pay the rent and put food on their table. It was a very confusing time. And some people uh, had the luxury of making an independent judgment and being able to make up their own mind about whether they're eligible or not. But other people weren't given that choice.
0: What was the tone at the time for people um, who were unsure if they qualified and didn't know whether or not they'd have to pay it back or whatever? Did the government say anything about those people? Or like what would happen if you were found to be ineligible later?
3: No, there wasn't a lot of discussion about that. The the priority was on making sure that people knew about the benefits and really making sure that they got access to them. Totally. You know, I think you have to appreciate that we were in a crisis that – public officials were rolling out programs in real time at a speed that they had never been seen before (laughs) Um, and that they were solving the most urgent problems first. And the urgent problem was to make sure people knew about the benefits and were getting them. The problem was not at the time to think about the consequences down the road of what would come next in terms of people who, who mistakenly applied in good faith or not, you know, for the benefit and weren't actually eligible.
0: When did that tone start to shift from just like, get the word out, get people applying, get money into their hands because this is a crisis, to, oh, we need to watch where this money's going and who's getting it and et cetera, et cetera?
3: I think, honestly, it only shifted after the release of the Auditor General's report on CERB in December 2022. And the report was critical of the Canada Revenue Agency it said that there had been an estimated $4.6 billion in overpayments through CERB and CRB, that CRA had not put in place an active and comprehensive verification program to determine whether people were eligible, and that it was being passive in recovery of funds that uh, had been paid to ineligible people in the sense that it was relying on Canadians to step forward and say yes, I I received this. I wasn't entitled to it after they received a letter from CRA saying that we think you probably weren't eligible. And they were just relying on Canadians to step up and say, okay, here, I'll repay it. And in fact, half of that money was repaid. So, you know, Canadians who had the means were stepping forward and saying, okay, I'll repay it here. And CRA was very much relying on them to do that. Um, And they were not aggressively pursuing people who had not paid. I think on the understanding that a lot of them were quite low income And a lot of people were struggling financially still um, during the pandemic, and that there was really no percentage in going after these people when they were down and struggling financially because most of them would probably fit the hardship provisions that CRA applies when it determines whether you need to repay your debts or when or how much. And so they, I think, had made a determination that there. This really wasn't the place to put their energies. The Auditor General disagreed and was quite aggressive in recommending that they need to step it up and start to go after because there was a three-year window under which CRA could reclaim payments to people who are ineligible. But when the Auditor General puts out a report like that, if the criticisms get taken up by the opposition parties, by the media... By various interest groups, um, and so it creates a lot of pressure on the agency and on the government more broadly to be seen to be responding. And a lot of people who are making judgments about CRA and the fairness of the tax system are doing it without the benefit of all the knowledge that CRA may have, or others who are closer to the issue uh, about the extenuating circumstances and who these people are. So. I think, you know, CRA was on the hook to publicly and formally respond to the Auditor General's recommendations. And if they didn't, then that would become a major political issue for the government because the opposition would go to town on them, as well as various interest groups that had a stake in this. So there were concerns raised, which are not ill-founded, on how are Canadians going to feel who didn't apply for CERB? or who applied and were deemed ineligible and then paid it back if they find out that other people weren't eligible and don't have to pay it back. And that raises real issues about the fairness and integrity of the tax system, which are legitimate concerns for CRA and the government. So hmm. I think, you know, they're trying to walk a fine line in response to that report.
0: So that is when the tone shifted. Mm-hmm. What actually shifted, and from that point on, what did the CRA do to get that money back? What did the process look like?
3: Well, I think they communicated with people they uh, by letter, and what they say is, "We think you were not eligible. Here's how much you owe the government, and uh, you know, please contact us to make a repayment plan. But if you don't, we're going to start just recouping the money. And the way they do that is when you file your taxes, then." They take it out of your refund or, you know, certain benefits, federal benefits were protected, so they couldn't take it out of those benefit payments. But other things weren't. People who expected to receive money back when they tax filed, which is most low income people, suddenly saw that they weren't getting the refund uh, that they anticipated because the CERB debt was being collected from that.
0: You mentioned that the CRA has a threshold to determine, um, like, low-income hardship, whether or not you can uh, pay them back. How does that work, and how do they determine who qualifies?
3: I think they use the low-income cutoff as a measure of poverty, and that's one factor that goes into – the problem is that how they determine hardship is not a transparent process or broadly understood outside the agency. It's hard for people to know – whether they would qualify for that hardship provision or not, and so that for people who are very low income and now believe they owe CRA a lot of money, their instinct may be: if I don't can't determine in advance whether I would qualify for that, then I'm not going to contact CRA, and in fact, I'm just going to stop tax filing hmm. and just try to avoid dealing with them because I have there's no way I can pay back this debt. So it's a bit of a vicious cycle. That lack of transparency creates real fear and uncertainty. Which leads to people being cut off from important income that they rely on through the tax filing process. So
0: Okay. Well, I have the numbers here. And the low income cutoff in this country, according to statistics, Canada, is fifteen thousand bucks for a person in a rural area and twenty-three thousand bucks if you're in a city with over half a million people. I guess my question is like that seems low to me. Is that a reasonable threshold?
3: No. No, it's not. In fact, it's not even consistent with the federal government's official poverty measure, which is the low income measure, which is considerably higher than that and which is tailored to the different regional costs. So really, depending on where you live, it's based on a market basket of goods that the average household would need. So it's an inappropriate measure to use. It's far too low. And I don't think it's it's an adequate measure of hardship for people, and particularly in this moment when we know there's an affordability crisis on, inflation and high interest rates, uh, which really affect people who have debt, which is fifty percent of low income people, mean that households are struggling like never before in our lifetimes mm-hmm. to afford even the basics of day to day life.
0: Well, our listener um, Cara has appealed uh, a couple of times to the CRA, you know, saying I legit cannot afford to pay it back, and and they've denied those requests. Like, what do people do in that situation? You kind of mentioned just starting to avoid the CRA entirely. Like, how should we handle that kind of stuff so that uh, we don't end up with people, um, you know, hating the revenue agency uh, or going bankrupt uh, in response to a debt that the government says they owe, which I, I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, can be the way the government wants that to work.
3: Uh, one would hope it, it isn't, but I think that this needs to be solved at the political level. Like the elected officials need to take on this problem. CRA is an administrative agency. It can't set policy, it can't change the rules, but the government can. And I think it's up to the elected officials to understand that in this moment, the kind of debt that they're talking about is not manageable by many households uh, and that they should be not walking away from it, but saying that, you know, we're going to use the market basket measure as a measure of hardship. And we're also going to be flexible, recognizing that people right up into the middle class, their mortgage costs have gone through the roof, et cetera. You know, the cost of food has gone up, the cost of energy, you know, everything is, is more pricey than it was. So uh, we're going to encourage CRA to be flexible and to really work with people on coming up with a repayment plan that, if you're above the market basket measure of poverty, uh, is manageable for you at this moment. And if you're below that threshold, we're going to say you are automatically in hardship and we are not going to ask for repayment. We are not going to impose interest and we are not going to impose penalties during this time. If your income improves, Then we're going to ask you to talk to CRA and to work on a repayment plan that's manageable for you. But until then, you do not have to pay back this debt. And it's not saying we're writing it off completely, but it's saying as long as you're living in poverty, uh, we agree that it would be imposing uh, undue hardship on you to ask you to pay this back. And that has always been CRA's policy in the sense, or the government's policy, is that we don't ask people to pay back when it's going to interfere with their ability to put food on the table, keep a roof over their head. You know, like people have to be able to meet their basic needs. And it's not in anybody's interest to undermine people's ability to do that. And they need to make sure that they're, they're taking the right measures to ensure that for people who live below the poverty line, but also people who are modest income, who are also really struggling right now.
0: It's really important that you mention it as a a political solution that needs to be found, because this is what I've been wrestling with since I I talked to Cara, is you have, um, on the one hand, the CRA just enforcing the rules that they're given, and the government is the one that has the ability to direct them. Um, and every second word out of this government's mouth is about they understand the affordability crisis, and they understand that things cost more, and they're on your side. And so it, it just seems to me like... Uh, These two things together don't make any sense. So uh, I'm really confused as to why they haven't moved on this, especially because they're getting hammered every day on affordability.
3: Yeah, and I think the actions need to match the words, and they're not in this case. I think when governments are sinking in the polls, the tendency is to want to go for the shiny things that they think will improve their political prospects and not to deal with the more substantive and less sexy issues that are fundamental to people's well-being in some cases. And I think this is one of them. I, I think a lot of people want to turn the page on the pandemic. They don't want to talk about it anymore. They want to move on. Uh, it was not a great period in many people's lives. And so the government is focusing on other things. But I think, you know, if there was one criticism I'd have for the government, is that we always knew when CERB and CRB were rolled out, that this reckoning would come and that it would be messy and there would be hardship and there would be problems. And they didn't spend the time once things became more normalized to put the effort into how are we going to manage this so that we're not upending people's lives or plunging them into financial crisis. And that's really what's happening. Um, The consumer that you're talking to is one of hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. uh, who are really struggling financially now. And we know from our network of community partners who provide tax filing and benefit and financial help to people. And also from the credit counseling uh, community that they have never seen the level of financial crisis in their clients that they're seeing right now. So if people are going to be sliding inexorably towards this financial cliff, the government should really be looking at all the ways in which it can help people avoid and destabilize financially and to start to <laughs> rebuild their financial health. And that includes not chasing after people who have no money at all to pay back this debt. I think it's incumbent on the, those of us who have a voice to really raise the temperature on this issue and not to let people forget um, because we want to put the pandemic behind us. All the people who are still carrying the legacy and are just burdened by these terrible debts that are pulling them under financially. And I, I'm not sure there are any many options for Kara except uh, if it comes to it to get financial counselling and if necessary help from a licensed insolvency trustee. But I think the rest of us who do have a voice uh, need to be turning up the temperature on this.
0: Hey, it's Jordan. Listen, a lot of people look at continuing education as a way to find a new career path. And during the time that I've been checking out the School of Continuing Studies at the University of Toronto, that's what I've been doing. And lifelong learning empowers us to improve our life circumstances, to meet changing employment demands, or to challenge our minds and improve our knowledge. But, as I can tell you from hosting this show for five years... I've just found great joy in diving deep into something you're simply curious about. And the School of Continuing Studies has more than 800 courses and 100 certificates to choose from to pique your curiosity. Here's one. As someone who used to be a reporter in a high-stress, anxious job, one of the things that I used to unwind at the end of the day, or, listen, sometimes during it, was mindfulness. Mindfulness and I was surprised and a little delighted to find that the School of Continuing Studies has an entire program dedicated to the practice. I'm fascinated by mindfulness because I'm fascinated by things that have their origins in ancient Eastern spirituality that spread to the West as practical self-help exercises and then end up commodified and sold as best business practices. Mindfulness has taken that entire journey and then some, and you can understand how it happened through these classes. If you're curious about something too, or you're looking for a new path, or you just find yourself wondering about all the things you always wanted to know more about, the School of Continuing Studies has something for you. You can browse those hundreds of courses and register at learn.utoronto.ca. That's learn.utoronto.ca. National Bank's online brokerage is available at $0 commission. That covers all online stock and ETF transactions. No minimum needed. Time to get started. Learn more at nbdb.ca. National Bank. As you heard, Cara is considering filing for bankruptcy. To help her and to help others who might be in a similar situation, we decided to take Elizabeth's advice and call up a licensed insolvency trustee. Well, yes, we've definitely had a lot of phone calls from people with CERB, and it's come in two waves. Doug Hoyes is the co-founder of Hoyes Michaelis & Associates, a firm of licensed insolvency trustees in Ontario. He's also the author of Straight Talk on Your Money, and he hosts the Debt-Free in 30 podcast. First wave was in 2022, when the government
1: did their first round of collections and that was going after the people where it was a huge number and it was quite obvious. What we've been seeing more recently, so probably starting around August of 2023 and continuing through the fall and into the winter is the government is now pursuing people with much smaller amounts. So I get a lot of calls from people who owe $2,000 and that's a strange amount, but it's because the first month of the pandemic Nobody really understood what was going on. So you could apply through CRA or you could apply through Service Canada. So people would apply through CRA and they didn't know if it had been received or not. So they'd apply through Service Canada. And then they ended up getting two payments instead of one. Right, And then when they realized the mistake, they, they stopped doing it or the government figured it out. But by that time, they had received two payments. And of course, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I don't have the money to pay it back because I had to use it to pay rent. So those are a lot of the calls we're getting now is from that second wave of people who have a relatively small amount owing. Maybe it's for $2,000 or $4,000. So, so yes, we're absolutely seeing it, and it is significant numbers. The The number of consumer insolvencies filed in Ontario so far this year is up about 30%. Wow. Now, numbers don't mean anything without any context. And I can tell you that the number of people filing insolvency in 2023 is still lower than the number of people who filed in 2019. Okay. So not crazy. Well, it's we had the big credit crisis back in 2008-2009. That's when personal insolvencies peaked. There were a lot of people certainly in the US losing their home, but that filtered through to Canada. And then we had a period of significant expansion, interest rates were going down. So from like 2010 to uh, you know, for 7, 8, 10 years, the insolvency rate was actually falling. And then it bottomed out sort of around 2017-2018. We started to accumulate more and more debt. We had a fairly significant number of insolvencies in 2019, although not as big as 2008, 2009. And then boom, the pandemic hit, everything shut down, insolvencies dropped by 50%. Because
0: lots of people were getting benefits.
1: Well, yes. And the reason you file an insolvency is I don't want my wages to be garnished. Well, if you're not working, you don't have any wages to garnish. Right. Right. And if the courts are closed down, nobody can take you to court and sue you to garnish your wages anyways. Hmm. So there was a massive drop in the number of insolvencies. 2020 was a very low year, well, after March. And then it it only gradually began to pick up in the ensuing years. So 2023, it's up 30%, but it's up over a much lower number than it was before. Now, my prediction is that by 2024, we will be back to the numbers we were seeing before the pandemic. And I know that because when you look at things like credit card debt, for the first time ever, we are now over $100 billion in in credit card debt, which is significantly more than it was in 2019. So credit card debt going up leads to insolvencies going up. So I I expect the, the numbers to be higher next year. Now, why is that? Well, inflation, it costs a lot more to live. Our incomes are not going up as much as inflation is going up. And as a result, we're using debt to survive. And when I say we, there are two groups of Canadians. There's the group that has owned a house for 20 years and everything's great. The mortgage is paid off. House prices are way up. The stocks are up. I can now put my money in the bank and earn 5%. It's great. Those people aren't having any trouble at all. But anyone who didn't own an asset like a house or stocks or whatever before the pandemic started, those are the people who are getting hammered because they're renters and their rent has gone way up. They spend a significant portion of their income on necessities like food, that's way up. And so those are the people that are resorting to debt, those are the people that are that are calling my office. And a lot of those people are the people who got SERB. The reason they're in debt is because their work was interrupted during the pandemic, so it's a double whammy. Their income dropped and now they're being required to pay back the SERB. Those are a lot of the people we're seeing today.
0: Um, for those who don't know, as it pertains to an individual, not a, a company or a business, uh, what is bankruptcy? Well, bankruptcy is a legal process. So it's governed by the
1: Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. And in really simple terms, you surrender your assets, but you also lose your debts. So if you own a fancy home with no mortgage and you go bankrupt, well, you lose your home. Most people who are going bankrupt don't have a lot of assets. That's why they're going bankrupt. The main reason they go bankrupt is to eliminate their debts so that the people they owe money to aren't taking them to
0: court, suing them, garnishing their wages. So it's, it is a way to eliminate your debts. How do you make the call on whether or not it's a good idea to file for bankruptcy? Um, what does a person consider when they're looking at that? Well,
1: my advice is always to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee who can walk you through all of these things. It's, it's kind of like saying, how do I make the call whether I should get surgery or not? So when when someone calls my office and I talk to them, I say, okay, well, walk me through your situation. What do you own? Do you have any assets? Because if you do, well, maybe you can sell them and pay off your debts. Second question, what debts do you have? Who do you owe money to? If you owe 100 bucks on your phone bill, well, you don't need to go bankrupt. Call them up. Make a plan to pay it off. But if your debts are more than you can realistically hope to ever repay, that's when you have to start considering the formal legal solutions, of which the two primary ones in Canada are bankruptcies and consumer proposals. The, the reason you declare bankruptcy, it's not just because you have a lot of debt. I mean, every Canadian now who owns a home has a million-dollar mortgage, <laughs> but they're not they're not going bankrupt they got a lot of debt. Right. You you declare bankruptcy because you have more debt than you can ever repay and you are worried that the creditors will take some action against you. Yes. So if I don't pay my credit card long enough, they will take me to court, sue me and try to garnish my wages. What's a consumer proposal before we go on with bankruptcy? It's a deal to repay your debts. So in a bankruptcy, you surrender your assets and you have to make a payment based on a number of factors, which we can discuss. In a consumer proposal, you avoid bankruptcy by going to your creditors and saying, Hey guys, I know I owe you $20, $30, 40000 dollars dollars I don't have that much money to pay you back. But how about we make a deal where I pay you two, three, four hundred bucks a month for the next five years? And that's not full payment for everything, but you agree to wipe out the rest of my debts. That's what a consumer proposal is. And and in Canada today, 80% of all consumer insolvency filings are consumer proposals. 20% are bankruptcies, 80% are consumer proposals. So it is by far the most prominent, prevalent
0: legal process to eliminate debts. Let's assume somebody has... Gone to a licensed insolvency trustee. They've even offered uh, a creditor proposal and uh, it's been turned down or they don't have enough money to do it. What happens as soon as you file? Walk me through the process. Number
1: one, okay, let's do the calculation to see what a bankruptcy would cost. Right. And so, you know, the minimum cost might be something like, let's say, $250 a month for nine months. And I'm giving you the, obviously, the the quick version of it. Um, the limit that you're allowed to make is based on the size of your family. So if you have a spouse, if you have a dependent child, the numbers are different. If you are paying out certain expenses, medical expenses, you're paying out child support for example that changes the the math if you're receiving child support that changes mm-hmm. the math so it's it's a kind of calculation you want an expert to do rather than just trying to trying to ballpark it right but if you have a situation where the debtor literally only has $10 a month that's that's all they've got after paying rent and buying food then i guess my answer would be well maybe what you start by doing is sending CRA $10 a month because what are the chances that CRA is going to go all the way to the step of garnishing your wages? They might, mm-hmm. but it is not something they are doing frequently now for CERB overpayments. If you owe them $50,000 in taxes and haven't filed your taxes for, for the last five years, yeah, sure, they will, they will garnish your wages. Right, But if you got an overpayment of CERB of a couple of thousand dollars I have not yet seen them go to that extreme of garnishing your, your wages. So option number one in this particular case is you could say, okay, you know what, I'm going to send you 10 bucks a month, and I realize that what CRA is going to do is claw back whatever benefits they would have otherwise sent me. So we get the climate action incentive payment that comes out, I think, four times a year. Uh, Well, they'll just scoop that and apply it against my CERB. If I'm eligible for a tax refund next year, obviously I won't get that. They'll apply it against CERB. Mm -hmm. So, you know, HST credits, GST credits, that sort of thing. So one option would be to make token payments to them, let them grab whatever other income they would have otherwise given you, and that may be sufficient. Right. Now- I'm not saying that's the right answer. I'm saying that would be option number one. That's the kind of I dare you option. Exactly. But remember, how many Canadians received CERB? It's something in the range of 9 million. Yeah. So CRA only has limited resources. So for them to be pursuing a million people for this particular overpayment, in, in addition to all the other stuff they've got to do, This is why we're having this discussion um, now as opposed to three years ago when it happened. It's taken this long to get to this point. Mm -hmm. So I don't expect CRA is going to move very, very quickly. So that's why option number one is, okay, I will make whatever payments I can. I'll let you take whatever benefits I would have otherwise received and we'll, we'll go from there. Now, if I'm wrong and CRA actually does go to the step of freezing your bank account, seizing your bank account, garnishing your wages, okay, then you do need a legal solution. That's when the bankruptcy or consumer proposal becomes number one on your list. But if the bankruptcy is going to cost you two or three or $400 a month, right. you're better off
0: paying whatever you can until you absolutely need to do it. That makes a lot of sense. I want to ask you now, and this is great, by the way. Thank you for addressing that situation because, uh, you know, as we've learned, there are a lot of Canadians, uh, low income, particularly in that situation. But while uh, we have you here. I-, I wanted to understand the process in general uh, just a little better because I think um, maybe, like myself, a lot of Canadians have movie versions of bankruptcy in their head, perhaps. So, you know, what happens uh, once you file for bankruptcy? Um, what happens next? Okay. So let's walk through the process
1: then. So you, you think you're in financial difficulty. So you reach out and talk to a licensed insolvency trustee and that's step number one, under no circumstances, do I ever advise someone to talk to an unlicensed, unregulated debt consultant, even though they advertise all over Facebook and everywhere else, we can settle your debts for, you know, 10 cents on the dollar you you go to a medical doctor when you have a medical problem, you go to a licensed insolvency trustee when you have a serious debt problem. So that's point number one. If whoever you're calling says, here's what my upfront fee is, then you know you're being scammed. A licensed insolvency trustee does not charge an upfront fee because we're not allowed to. Simple as that. Okay. So you call my office, I gather all the information, And we decide, yes, a bankruptcy is the correct option. So a bunch of paperwork gets filled out. You review it. We make sure you understand it. I always like to give you a couple of days to read through everything before we formally sign it. And once that paperwork is signed, I electronically file it with the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy, which is a division of the federal government, and you are instantly bankrupt. I get a file number back, you're bankrupt. The next day, we send all of that information out to each of your creditors, advising that you filed a bankruptcy, and each of your creditors then has the opportunity to file what's called a proof of claim directly with me, basically saying, here's how much I'm owed right So as soon as the bankruptcy is filed, there's what's called a stay of proceedings, which means all of the creditors have to stay away. They can't sue you, can't garnish your wages. That's it. And again, I'm oversimplifying a little bit. If you robbed a bank, then sure. you' still have to pay them back. but I'm talking about you know your your credit cards, payday loans, government you know serb overpayments and so on. right. So during the bankruptcy period, you have a bunch of duties. The minimum bankruptcy period is nine months. It can go longer if your income is higher. During the bankruptcy period, number one, you have to give us proof of your income each month, copies of your pay stubs or whatever, because the more ma- the, the the payment you make is based on your income. Um, you have to attend two credit counseling sessions, which are actually a good thing because. We, we go through, how did I get into this situation? We give you some tools to make sure that you get a fresh start at the end of it. So you're required to attend those two sessions. If you're bankrupt, we have to file your taxes, uh, certainly for the year of bankruptcy. So you will not get a tax refund for the year that you go bankrupt. And you have to you know give us details on whatever assets you have. If there are any assets that are not exempt that we, the trustee has to take and distribute to your creditors, then you'd have to cooperate with us to to do that. So right. there are a bunch of procedures that happen during the bankruptcy process. If you complete all of those duties and if no creditors object, then at the end of the bankruptcy period, the trustee signs a, a piece of paper saying you're discharged and that's it. And that's the point that your debts are officially wiped out. Okay.
0: Once that happens, once you've gone through all that, what does that do to your credit
1: score? Well, your credit score when you go bankrupt is probably not good to begin with. Yeah, okay? fair enough. So it's like going to the dentist and saying, oh, is my, is my tooth going to hurt after you do what you got to do? And the dentist is going to say, well, doesn't it hurt now? That's why you're here, right? Right. Your credit score may take a hit when you go bankrupt, probably will. But it's probably not 800 now anyways, although it could be. I have had people who've got really high credit scores, but that's just because they're cycling their debt all around. So assume that your credit score will take a hit when the bankruptcy is filed or a consumer proposal, same process. Once the bankruptcy is over and you've been discharged, there is a note that stays on your credit report if it's your first bankruptcy for six years after you are discharged. Hmm. Now, that sounds bad. Oh, there's going to be a note on my credit report. Well, yeah, I guess compared to paying off your debts in full, it is bad. But you can then begin the process of rebuilding. And this is something we go through with our clients in detail. Here's what you need to do. So the most important thing is start saving some money. You want to have a bit of an emergency fund so that you've got cash when you need it because you don't have any credit cards probably at this point because you you went right. you went bankrupt. So, we walk you through the process of rebuilding. Start by building an emergency fund. Start saving money. And then if you believe you need credit in the future, you can start small, get a, you know, small credit card and and build up. So, even though there's a note on your credit report for 6 years, you can certainly rebuild a lot quicker than that and I've had you know, hundreds, thousands of clients over the years who two years after their bankruptcy or their consumer proposal is finished are back to a credit score of of 700 or higher. So if you take the necessary steps, you can absolutely rebuild. This is definitely not a life sentence.
0: Last question then, given the relative uh, levels of people filing for bankruptcy, would it make an impact? on the economy? If those levels continue to rise, like I'm trying to quantify, you know, it, it might be rising quickly, but that still might be a drop in the bucket can, compared to like the overall economy in Canada or, or is this level of insolvency that we might be headed to dangerous for, for the health of our economy?
1: Well, if you're asking me, are the big banks going to be in trouble? Should we be worried about those poor guys? My answer would be no, <laughs> I think they're going to be fine. Um, so we can all rest assured that, that their billion dollar per month profits are, are still going to be there. Now, yes, they are increasing their loan loss provisions. So yes, they're going to not make quite as much money as they were before, but they're still going to be fine. I don't expect the Canadian economy to shut down. So maybe you know this year, next year, we'll have somewhere between 100,000 and 150,000 Canadians filing an insolvency okay, well, there's 40 million of us. right? So I wouldn't say it's a drop in the bucket. And for the person who is affected by this, it is absolutely yeah. not a drop in a bucket. This is a very serious thing. But no, I don't believe the, the Canadian economy will, will shut down. Now, it's not my job to worry about the Canadian economy. I worry about individual people. And that's why I say to anybody who has debt that they can't handle, debt problems don't get better on their own interest doesn't just disappear. It gets worse and worse as it compounds. So if you are struggling, then reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee, get them to walk you through your options. It doesn't cost anything for that initial call. Understand what your options are, and then you can
0: make an informed decision. We reached out to the Canada Revenue Agency to comment on why they're pursuing repayments during an affordability crisis and exactly how they're determining who's required to pay this money back. They got back to us fairly quickly, but basically, um, in lots of official-sounding language, this is what they said. If you applied in good faith and didn't meet the eligibility requirements, you won't be paying any interest or added money on the amount you receive, but also that it's the responsibility of the agency to make sure every Canadian who receives these benefits actually qualifies for them. So yes, they do expect you to pay it back. Now look, I might not be able to make your debt magically disappear. Neither can Doug or Elizabeth or apparently the Canada Revenue Agency. But if you are struggling to pay back COVID benefits, there are a few things you can try. First, this might be a long shot given what I just told you about the CRA, but if you think you might be eligible for relief, you can file a request with the Canada Revenue Agency to conduct a second review of your file. They tell us that the second review will not be done by the same CRA official who did the first one, so it won't just be another rubber stamp. And if you disagree with the results of the second review, you can also consider applying to the federal court for a judicial review of the CRA's decision. They have, however, made it pretty clear that If you weren't technically eligible, it's going to be really hard to get a reversal. So in that case, secondly, just talk about it with anyone in power who will listen. Consider calling or emailing your Member of Parliament and explaining your situation and your hardship. The more people that you can get advocating for relief on these payments, the more likely the government will be to make a move on policy. And really, that's the only thing it's going to change what the CRA is doing. Lastly, if or when all that fails, you can find a licensed insolvency trustee and schedule an appointment. Insolvency trustees are federally regulated, they are qualified professionals, and they can help with your debt problems. Don't fall for false promises made by debt consolidators, and if you're unsure which is which, You can visit the Government of Canada website. They have a complete directory of licensed insolvency trustees there, and it's organized by location. There is somebody near you who can help. There are thousands of other Canadians in your situation. None of you are alone. Thank you to Elizabeth Mulholland and to Doug Hoyes for sharing their expertise with us. And thank you, obviously, to Cara for writing in and sharing your money problem. Debt is tough to talk about. We know it's not easy. We really appreciate your openness. If you have a money problem, we definitely want to hear from you. We hope we can help. You can email us at hello at itepod.ca you can call us and leave us a voicemail at 416 935 5935. And if you are calling in, remember to leave a callback number or else we can't get in touch and then we can't help you. You can also find us on social media. We are on Instagram and TikTok at In This Economy Pod. Thank you above all for listening. If you like what we're doing, rate us, review us, tell a friend, come along for the ride. I am your host and executive producer, Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This episode was written and produced by Stephanie Phillips. The sound design was done by Robin Edgar. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Kay is our manager of business development. And all together now, we are the Frequency Podcast Network. And we will talk to you once again next week. Hey, it's Jordan. A lot of people look at continuing education as a way to pick up new hard or soft skills or even change jobs. That's a good thing to do. I should probably be doing that. But as I looked at the options at U of T's School of Continuing Studies, and they have more than 800 courses and 100 certificates, I realized something. This is not to criticize my own university experience, but listen, I went to journalism school. I learned journalism. Everything else was secondary to me. What I never got, what a lot of people who quickly learn a trade never get, was the type of in-depth learning of classical subjects that we associate with higher education. One of the things on my own bucket list is to read and learn from the classics of literature. It's kind of embarrassing. I've never read them, but, but the Continuing Ed Literature program might be the thing that actually checks that off. And I might not have time to do a full program, but there is a three-course deep dive on the great books— It takes care of everything, from Shakespeare to Machiavelli, from T.S. Eliot to Virginia Woolf, and all the other stuff. I was too busy running around a student newspaper office to stop and sink my teeth into. It'll probably make me smarter, and hey, speaking of soft skills, it might make me better at these podcast intros. If you are curious too, or you're looking for a new path, or you just find yourself wondering about everything you don't know, the School of Continuing Studies has something for you. You can browse hundreds of courses and register at learn.utoronto.ca. That's learn.utoronto.ca. National Bank's online brokerage is available at $0 commission. That covers all online stock and ETF transactions. No minimum needed. Time to get started. Learn more at nbdb.ca. National Bank. My name
1: is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story.